Welcome to the Legally Sound Smart Business Show, your weekly look at legal news and questions in the business world. Here are your hosts, Nasser Pasha and Matt Staub. Welcome to our podcast. My name is Nasser Pasha. Now Matt Staub, two attorneys with Pasha Law, firm practicing in California, Texas, New York, and Illinois. And this is where we cover business in the news and give you our legal twist to that news. Uh, but today, I think we're going to do a nice walkthrough through a process of what I like to call buying a business. Mm. I just made that up. Yeah, this is this is going to offer more than just the the business in the box um, thing that you can purchase, which I've never actually looked into, but I've heard people tell me about it. So I don't know what's in there, but hopefully we can offer something more insightful than more, that. Yeah, we're going to expand on that a little bit more, take you on a nice cruise or flight from coast to coast, all the way from starting to figure out which business you want to buy to even post-closing transactions. I mean, we can just kind of kind of jump into this. So like you said, you know, finding a business to buy, I guess it'd probably be helpful if the prospective buyer knew what they wanted to buy. So let's just assume they are going to. I, I think a question that gets asked a lot of times, at least to, to myself, and I'm sure to you as well, when a buyer approach, a potential buyer approaches us is whether they should find a broker, a business broker for the transaction, because that's, you know, sometimes that's just the starting point and, or what they think they should do, or they've typed, honestly, it's probably something they typed into Google and, and business broker popped up. So I think that is something that a lot of times is in the back of their mind that they need, but as we'll discuss, you know, it isn't always the case and doesn't always make sense. Yeah. It, and frankly, it's just not as common. And there's a reason for that. It's not like a, you know, what I think a lot of people are more familiar with is, you know, selling a home, buying and selling, buyers and seller brokers are common. I mean, it's, mm-hmm. uh, you have to have both. But when you're selling a business, uh, for I think obvious reasons, oftentimes these businesses are not like, just posted somewhere where all of a sudden you have a for sale sign outside your door. Obviously, people want to keep those kinds of things confidential. And even if it is semi-public, it's more kind of shopping around. Only certain people know about it. And so accordingly, all the information is usually held by the seller. And in order to tap into certain markets, the seller often has, uses, or utilizes a broker. And so just because of that concept that confidentiality aspect of it, there's this kind of natural progression of more brokers tend to be representing sellers. And it's not to say that there's not, there's not plenty, there's plenty of buyers, brokers. It's just, uh, it's a kind of a different world for, you know, when you're approaching this, uh, if you're thinking about getting a buyer's broker, you do have to consider some other factors. Yeah. And you know, the, the first, so let's say you're, you're the buyer and well, I guess let's say you've, you know, the seller and the buyer those parties already known. And as the buyer, you find out that the seller has a broker. It doesn't always mean that you're at a you know, disadvantage at this point, because a lot of times a seller might have a broker because it's a very niche area, or maybe their, you know, their job a lot. And sometimes, or a lot of times is to find the, the right buyer for this transaction. So don't make it, it doesn't need to be the case that you feel like you're already off, you know, you don't have the leverage in the situation, but you know, it, it does it, on the flip side of that, you know, if it is a, a broker in a niche area or industry, then they're, they're probably going to know things that are going to be advantageous to the seller. Um, so I guess on the, whether you get a broker or not, 
from the buyer's perspective, it's just kind of a, a due diligence thing and knowing, you know, as much about the potential transaction as you can going into it in the industry as well. Yeah. And, and, and again, depending on the industry, like you said, could be a very small group of potential targets. And so similarly, there's going to be only a small group of potential brokers in that area. And, and I found this in, in different areas that you'll, you'll, you'll have brokers that all know each other and it's kind of a small space. Again, it depends upon the industry. One thing, this is, most people know this, but just in case, I'll just put it out there. If you are acquiring a business and that business happens to be represented by a broker, uh, it, it can sometimes be confusing, sometimes at the part of the broker's own doing, as to which party that broker represents. Now, that broker obviously, as just as like any other broker, they get paid typically on the transaction itself. Just be weary or be cognizant that, hey, look, this, this broker likely represents the seller unless otherwise disclosed to you. And even if there's dual representation, there are some biases there. And so uh, that's, that's where a buyer's broker may help, especially if you need representation. It's something that you don't have a lot of experience in. And remember, brokers come in all ranges and sizes. Some will are literally just connectors. They'll introduce you and then that's it. And then they'll just expect a commission at the end and where others will negotiate, help you structure the deal and be really involved. And obviously, depending upon the level of service comes the price and the quality of service as well. Yeah, exactly. And I, I think that from the the more you know about the the business that you're going to be buying, the less likely you might be to, to have a broker or to use a broker and or, you know, the the more complex the transaction might be, the more inclined you're going to be. So, I mean, it's, there's a lot of sliding scales on this, but um, just know that you know, they are out there. And like, like you said, there's, there's good and bad and they can provide a wide range of services that they'll actually offer for you. I mean, obviously you have to have to pay them as well, but sometimes that could be, you know, well worth it if they do negotiate on your behalf or have some recommendations that, end up being very beneficial for you. Yeah. And you'll also find a lot of the buyer brokers are not necessarily contingency-based or commission-based. It may be a combination of that as well as either an hourly fee or retainer. And and just like any brokerage agreement, the brokers are going to push for long-term representation agreements. Uh, you'll, you'll probably want to keep that short depending upon the window that you're looking for target businesses. But but so so let's say, let's say you found the business, you know what you want, what's the next step? Well, I think you buy it and that's it, right? Is that how, is that how it works? That's right. You take out, either you take out your wallet, hopefully you have enough cash. Otherwise you may have to go to the bank, which is an extra trip. So it may delay you a little bit, but yeah. Well, the, the joking, I mean, well, it's probably funnier to us for a different reason because it doesn't just happen like that. And the reason being that a lot of times, you know, there's a lot of due diligence that has to be gone through or, you know, documents provided and all that. So what happens a lot of times is the parties will enter or into a letter of intent where they basically jot down, you know, it could be a lot of terms. It could be less and just some material terms, but the, the understanding between the buyer, the potential buyer and seller as to what this trend, you know, the terms of this transaction are going to be. So, you know, you get that in place and then you kind of just can go through the due diligence and negotiation process from there. Yeah. Letters of intent are a great tool. It's not for every transaction, but especially very small microtransactions. But 
if it's anything significant, and when I say significant, that's relative to the buyer, right? I mean, and, and the seller for that matter. If this is a big transaction for you and you want to make sure that you get this right, a letter of intent is a great tool. Typically, if it's drafted properly, it's going to be non-binding or there's going to be non-binding provisions. And the idea is to basically say, okay, I want to buy your business. Here are the basic terms. Let's hash out the main details now because uh, I don't want to spend all this time, whether it's attorney's fees or even my broker's time or my time, if we can't agree on these basic terms. So it, it, you'll find the, the obvious stuff in there, the purchase price, the timing of everything. And so most of the provisions will be non-binding, but there are sometimes going to be binding provisions in there and some of them that you may actually want. For example, a typical binding provision will be that both parties will engage in exclusive dealing. Like, look, I'm going to be talking to you. I'm going to negotiating with you, but I don't want you to be playing me off some other potential buyer. I want you and I to be discussing to draft these definitive purchase agreements exclusively for the next X number of days, 30 days, 60 days, or what have you. And those can be binding. And there could be other binding provisions like confidentiality and things of that nature as well. Yeah, I mean, it's, and again, this, it all comes down to what the sides are willing to agree to. But yeah, from the buyer's perspective, you know, as much of it non binding as you can, other than the pieces that you want to. That way you can, you know, still walk away from the deal if it's not what you first thought or not what you were sold on initially. So and I think the things with letters of intent, like you said, they can be a useful tool for sure. And the more you, the more you can put on that piece of paper, the better. But just make sure that what's on that piece of paper is accurately reflecting, you know, your understanding or what you want from the transaction. Because, you know, if it's something on there, and especially if it's binding, obviously, but you know, it's later on, it's it's not what you you know had agreed to, or at least what you thought you agreed to. It can become a problem down the road. Yeah, that's a good point. I think a lot of people kind of because it's non-binding, they kind of take it loosely. And the problem with that is that you're kind of ignoring the tool of the LOI itself. I mean, this is a negotiation tool. And if you're able to get your terms in there now, even if it's non-binding, you've created a situation where it's going to be much more difficult to take that term back, assuming that it's favorable to you. And the opposite could be true too. If you take it too lightly and you know you have a certain term in there that you'd prefer and then you want to go back, the other party is going to be reluctant to say, hey, we, we already agreed to this. You know, why are we going backwards here? Mm -hmm. and, and the nice thing with the, with a letter of intent is that if you, you know, obviously you want to try to memorialize as much as possible, but, you know, if there's something that the parties can agree to and you just don't want to be hung up on it and you want to kind of keep the ball rolling here, well, you can always, I mean, just leave it out altogether or, you know, even make some sort of footnote or, or something basically start even a clause in the actual lie stating that something that the the parties will you know, discuss later or agree to later the actual transaction. So I've seen LOIs that are terrible and I've seen some that have, I mean, at the end of the day, it is a contract. I've seen some that basically ended up being the, the underlying contract, you know, again, with, it's kind of similar to, to the broker. You can have a very limited one or you can have a very inclusive one. Yeah, and and that's a again a really good point because I've seen where it may say letter of intent, but because of how it's actually drafted, it ends up being binding. So get an attorney, obviously a, an attorney that knows what they're doing. It's a pretty simple process, and also it doesn't 
take that long for an attorney to do. So from a cost benefit analysis, I think it's worth it. Sure. To get done. I definitely agree with that. I mean, and again, it's for, you know, if it's drafted in the right way, you can walk away, you know, you can walk away from the transaction with pretty minimal expense on that, or at least it should be the case. All right. Well, let's get into the actual underlying transaction. There's a couple options here. And because so, so you tell you, you say you're going to buy a business. What it comes down to is whether it's, it's an equity purchase or an asset purchase. And there's obviously a lot of pros and cons to each, and it's very fact specific. But just generally speaking, equity purchase means you're going to buy everything. Asset purchase means you're you're buying the assets, and you know the liabilities are are not part of this underlying transaction. So you know this is this is where the the due diligence and the full understanding of the financials definitely comes into play. But, you know, it's, 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 this is a huge piece because obviously if you're going to do an equity purchase, you want to be a hundred percent sure you know what you're getting into because there's a lot more risk involved as opposed to just strictly buying the assets of a company. Yeah. And precisely right. The, if you guys understand the differences of the different kinds of entities, whether it's LLC, a corporation or limited partnership, you are when in an equity purchase, you are buying the ownership interest in that in that particular entity. In other words, the tax ID, for example, some people will look at it as a tax ID. The tax ID does not change. You are still going to be using that particular tax ID. And so what does that mean? All the liabilities, all the contracts, the positive and negatives are going to stay within the business, unless you, you know, contract otherwise. And you can have indemnification provisions, but again, that's getting too detailed here. And so, so many would say, okay, why would you ever do an equity purchase? Because in an asset purchase, you can, first of all, pick and choose which assets you want to buy. You can pick and choose which liabilities or contracts you want to assume. And so why would you ever do an equity purchase? And I'll tell you, there's lots of reasons and they, it happens all the time. And it's hard to go through every reason, but this is how I kind of explain it and how it kind of covers pretty much everything. Equity purchases are favored where there's a desirable asset contract or some kind of relationship that's not freely transferable. So what do I mean by that? So as an example, let's say that the business has a particular governmental issued license. That license may not be easily transferable from one entity to another, or it may not be transferable at all. And so in those cases, because that license has value, the only way to get into it is through an equity purchase. Another example is, for example, let's say that you have a lease or a contract that is very valuable, whether it's a service contract that it's revenue making or a contract that it's a particular lease, a space lease in a building that you really want to get into because there's value in that. And the only way to because that particular other party is not going to assign the lease to you, the only way is for you to actually buy the equity, assuming that there's no, you know, change of control provision restricting uh, an assignment. Yeah, I mean that's the thing for you know a location-based business. Now, especially if the the rent, if it's a long-term lease and the rent's favorable to the tenant, then yeah, I mean, landlords kind of want to try to get out of that. So, <laughs> but yeah, again, you have to. You do have to look at the actual lease itself to make sure that you're not triggering any sort of change in control provision and the landlord can get out of that way. It's, it can be pretty tricky, yeah. but 
you know, it's like you said, there's, there are times where it definitely makes sense to do an equity purchase, but for all the times it doesn't, an asset purchase is nice because you said you can buy everything or you can pick and choose what you want. So, you know, it's, uh, it just, you know, I don't know how much more we can really say about it. Cause it's really, again, it's really fact specific and in terms of when it, which option you should choose, but just know that both those options are out there and one way or another, the, the debt probably gets discussed. So it's, it's, you know, it's, That's true. it's definitely yeah. something to to consider. Obviously, if you do an equity purchase, you're going to have to deal with it yourself, but you know, it's, it's still, even if you do an, a, an asset purchase, the, the debt of the, the seller is still going to be in consideration of, of everything as a whole. Yeah. Just because, just because you buy the assets doesn't mean that whoever are the creditors for that debt for the selling business isn't going to try to go after you, right? Because they're going to look at you as a successor in interest. And, you know, most of the time when it's an asset sale, you're going to be legally protected, but, and also probably indemnified by the seller, but that doesn't mean that you're not going to have to deal with that. So yeah. and, oh, before we go, one, one other thing that I forgot to mention on the equity side is another good reason to do it that I've seen is if for some reason the, the both, frankly, both the buyer and the seller don't want to disclose to any third parties, they want some privacy that there's been a change of ownership. Because typically in pretty much every state, if you sell the stock or ownership interest in an entity, you don't have to publicly file anything to that effect. Now, if you change the officers or directors or managers of the entity, that's a different issue. But my point being is that it could be a very private transaction. Whereas if you buy the assets and you're operating a new entity, even if you are using the same name, there's going to be a paper trail uh, that's going to be much more easily found on the public record for that. Sure. It's a, it's a, you know, another good point. Well, and then let's get to kind of the next phase here. And again, it's <laughs> whether you do equity or, or asset purchase, you know, you're going to want to do your due diligence. It's going to be more important maybe for, for some sides than others, but this is the, I mean, this is probably this, the time where, let me, let me step back a second. Once the LOI, if and when an LOI is signed, this due diligence phase is typically going to be the time where the deal is going to blow up or not end up happening, or the buyer's going to walk away because this is when you're going to be able to really request documents, get a, get a real good look into the detail of how this business was run and you know what the operations and it, you know every little thing in there that you are request and given i suppose it could be the case where you don't always get everything but you know assuming that you ask for everything and you receive it this is a time where you know you really have to look into it and, and get a good idea of whether you still want to go through the deal or not assuming you can walk away if you wanted to yeah and and these there's different phases of due diligence right after the LOI sign like you said there's kind of this preliminary phase usually again it depends how the deal is structured. But even after uh, the purchase agreement is signed, there's usually a period, again, typically, that is another due diligence period, which allows, even if the, there is some kind of earnest money deposit for the buyer to drop out. And so as a buyer, that's, that's a very key point because you want to be able to get into a definitive agreement where you as a buyer can unilaterally walk out at any time but the seller is obligated to sell at the agreed terms no matter what. And whether or not you're able to negotiate that, whether you need to put up more earnest money, whether some money needs to go hard, et cetera, those are all kind of deal points you can deal with. 
Yeah, so I think if we're looking at this from the personal standpoint, I think we the LOI, you know, that's that's securing the first date. And now we're in the phase of due diligence. This is the, the period of time where you decide whether this relationship is going to work or not. No one's signed on the bottom line yet, but you know, this is the opportunity to to fully vet either side. And so we're we're moving right along in this in, in the business standpoint. I don't know if you like my analogy or not, but well, I I was trying to wait to uh, get you to when you're going to propose. So (laughs) we're going to get to it. (laughs) So long as you go on one knee, that's that's all. (laughs) We should also mention UCC searches. Whether there's a lien that's been filed on any of the you know the assets of the company. I mean, this is something. I guess if if it's run through an escrow, a lot oftentimes escrow companies will will do this, but. You know, this is something that from the buyer's perspective, you're definitely going to want to do just to get an idea if there's any, and honestly, this could be something where the seller might not even know that there is a lead out there. I guess it's possible. True, yeah. yeah. I mean, but no, yeah, it's, it's very common because you, you'll either lease some equipment and the lessor will put up something or you have a loan or what have you. Sometimes there's, if it's an old business, you'll just have UCC liens just out there that should have been removed a long time ago. And the thing is, this applies whether or not it's an asset or an equity sale, yeah. because if the assets are encumbered, right, and that UCC lien is on there, and just to be clear, so a UCC lien is just something you file. I just want to simplify it really quick, is that if you have a security interest as a creditor on some kind of real property, tangible, intangibles, et cetera, then you can file within, usually on a state level, a UCC lien basically telling the world, hey, I have an interest in this particular property, this personal property. And so basically that puts you on notice. And so if you don't do your search, the it's on you. And so that's part of it. And I mentioned this because it's, it's just often forgotten for some reason. I mean, I don't know how many times this is like last minute transaction and like, have you done a UCC lien search? And there, yeah, of course, something pops up. So it's just something to to keep in mind, and even if an escrow company's going to do it for you, still, you know, it doesn't hurt to to kind of double check. So, all right, well, let's assume that you know everything goes fine in the due diligence process. At this point, you're you're moving in together. So, well, I, well, I was going to say, I, I I think the proposal point is basically when you sign the definitive agreement. It's like, okay. Let's agree to get married. We're not getting married yet, mm. but you know what? Uh, I think I'm gonna have to agree with that. That's a good point. So right, and 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 maybe the UCC search is like, you know, if you find a lien, it's like, you know, you never told me about this hidden secret that you should have told me about. You know, it's the compatibility test that you're that sometimes couples take in between the proposal and the the marriage or the wedding date. So I think that's right. right. It's a yeah, I mean, it depends. Everyone's relationships are different, but uh, this is, seems to be more traditional. True. But okay, I don't, I don't know where the escrow comes in. <laughs> and maybe you could think of, think of one. But so escrows are, believe it or not, not as common for business transactions or acquisitions. And I mean, the main reason is, is because sometimes if there's earnest money, it's usually just a small amount and that could be held in an attorney-client trust. It's so, I've seen it sometimes you just give it to the, to the seller. You know, it's just like you're basically committing to it that, most likely we're going to go through this transaction, but escrow companies do exist. But the problem is, is that, and this is just my personal experience and maybe I'm just have a bad experience, but I find that most, it's hard to find an escrow company that has a lot of experience with business transactions. And so 
you there are they're definitely out there, but you really have to search around and to find some good ones. And and some it's hard to keep using the same ones as well because some escrow companies are better for certain types of transactions as well. And some of them aren't willing to hold money for a while sometimes without, you know, extra fees. And so there's a lot of options out there, but uh, maybe other people have different experience, but that's been my experience. Yeah. And I, I think that you're right. And in, in the niche areas or things that aren't common, you know, just not a standard normal sale. You know, I think that's, that's the times when you'll definitely see it. I'm trying to think of it like a transfer of a liquor license, for example, or any sort of license like that. That's when you're going to see Yeah, it. They even have domain escrows, right? Like yeah, where- true. If you're buying a buying a domain, which can be part of buying a business, you use an escrow company because obviously once it's transferred, especially if it's someone you haven't met and it's transferred and hard to get back. Yeah. Well, I'm going to leave the uh, analogy to you. You'll figure this out because we're at the we're at the closing stage of the tra- closing. I know. Okay, that's the wedding day. Yeah. <laughs> Maybe escrow is like the I don't know the wedding planner. The, yeah. All right. Well, we'll, I like the wedding planner. Okay. That might work. work. Well, it was one more thing on the escrow. So like sometimes, and we'll kind of hit this on the, on the post-closing transaction section as well. If you have any kind of holdback where, and where this comes into play is that, okay, you buy a business and sometimes there are some known liabilities or unknown liabilities, or there is some expectation that the value of the business is based upon certain performance post-closing, these kinds of things, right? And based upon what happens after closing may change how much money is owed to the other party or vice versa. And so sometimes it's useful to have a holdback where part of the purchase price is put into escrow. And depending upon what happens again after closing, the escrow company distributes the money accordingly. Again, this could be based upon a certain EBITDA target, or maybe in order to see what certain liabilities, like for example, in healthcare, a lot of times after closing, there might be some callbacks from healthcare payers or the government, uh, some kind of recoupment, for example, and you need to put some money aside just for that because it's an understanding and expectation of the business. And then after that's known, you distribute the, the funds. And so having a good escrow company for that is very essential. That's the, so that's the wedding planner. That's their job. So, you know, every due diligence has been done. Both parties still want to move forward with it. Now we're at the, the date where everything gets signed off on the, on the dotted line and the transfers begin to occur. And as a buyer, you're, you're now buying this business, whether it be all of it or, or part of it. And, you know, it's, it's kind of, uh, I view this is my personal take. I view it as kind of anticlimactic because it's, you know, once you get to closing, it's just like, all right, well, everything's already done. And there's, now we're just, it can be, we're, yeah. now, we're now just formalizing it. Everyone's waiting for this date. Even when you buy a home, right? It's kind of a similar thing. True. It's like, well, now I technically own it, but all the, all the exciting stuff or the stuff that could have blown up has already happened. So now I'm just getting what I wanted. And sometimes, well, hopefully it's not the case of like, the you know driving the the new car off the lot you're like oh well now it's i don't really even want this anymore but you know (laughs) and so the one thing i want to mention about closing is that a lot of times i feel as though the parties again this is from our angle as attorneys so 
they they're just like you said they've kind of just are over it they're by this time especially in a big transaction everyone's kind of been in it for a while they're just ready to get it done at this point they have deal fatigue and and so they just want to sign and, and get out the only caveat to that is that well if you want to have a vegas wedding you can do that you can close you know have a nice wedding day very you know close it up really quick but the right way to do it is to make sure you have all the closing documents prepared and these closing documents are extremely important maybe not for that day but for the day after in the sense that the closing documents are just not the purchase agreement there are other documents in there for example you'll usually have a certified resolution that author, you know basically says that either party is authorizing the sale and this is very important when you have multiple owners of the of the company another one is a bill of sale especially in an asset purchase you need to be able to prove to a third party that you actually own own the assets and, and in some cases, and you're not going to show them the purchase agreement, you're going to show them the bill of sale. Another big one is any consents for assignments. So I, I'm going to mention space leases because that's one of the most common things when you buy a business that, again, whether it's an asset purchase or an equity purchase, most often you need the consent of the landlord. And that's usually a contingency upon the sale. And so at closing, you need to make sure you actually have the consent signed by the landlord and that assignment of the contract so that, again, you can show a third party, whether it's the landlord or future landlords, that I am the rightful less, lessee of this space. Yeah, it's it's a good point. I mean, and usually there these agreements, there's the, for the purchase agreement, there's some sort of further assurances clause that you know, the parties are going to execute all documents or take sure. all actions as required on the agreement. But it's always good to have everything in place, ready to go for closing, so you don't have to have to. Yeah, work because with. the reality is, is and this happens all the time, is that you have to go back to the other party, and depending upon how smooth that transaction went, that may not be as easy as you think to get. You know, the sellers may have been already gone and retired to. What's a good place to retire these days? Towards Costa Rica, maybe. Well, anyway, so yeah, they might be there by now. All right, closing. So you're done, right? I mean, that's uh, that's everything, or you know, the there's no more, there's nothing else to have to worry about at this point, or is there? <laughs> Are we still talking about the marriage or no? <laughs> I'm just talking, that, I'm, that very bad joke. I hope my wife did not hear that, but because that was just joke. I've already, but I already um, texted her. So. Oh darn it! Okay, so for the most part, for buying a business, closing's the end of it. But as a buyer. This is definitely the case. You know, if you're dealing with seller financing, sometimes, whether it's a promissory note where you're paying over time, or like I said, those clawbacks, and this is probably more sensitive for a seller, but you you kind of are in wait to see if, make sure that there's nothing crazy that happens in the sense that everything that the seller told us was incorrect or fraudulent, and somehow the business is not what it's supposed to be. And the hope is, is that everything goes well, right. but, but generally, Generally, after closing, it's over. Yeah, that's right. And like you said, the you know, if there's some sort of, if there is a, a promissory note or anything to that degree, you know, and there's personal guarantees attached. I mean, obviously, then the relationship is not over at that point. You still have communication between the parties, but you know, if it's a pretty clean deal and everything's squared away at closing, then yeah, you should be you know, pretty much done. I mean, there might be small things here or there, but you know, for the most part, that's it. And then you get on to actually running the business at that point. You're going to your honeymoon, basically. Yeah, exactly. 
I, I think we hit the hit the analogy, right? Yeah, yeah with, with some help. I don't know if we took it too far, but... No, I think we're okay. <laughs> okay. Funny enough, I was just going to pause and ask to see if anyone has any questions. <laughs> of course, I very quickly realized that's not a good idea to ask. Yeah. If you do have any questions, feel free to send it over or comment on our our blog post. Yeah, we took a little bit of time off, but so we're a little bit rusty, but hopefully we can jump right back into this and it was beneficial for the listener. Absolutely. Well, anyway, uh, I do appreciate everyone joining us. Thank you. Yep. Keep it sound and keep it smart. This has been the Legally Sound Smart Business Show with your hosts, Nasser Pasha and Matt Stop. The Legally Sound Smart Business Show is your weekly look at legal news and questions in the business world. Legally Sound Smart Business is a podcast that is intended but not promised or guaranteed to be current, complete, or up-to-date, and should in no way be taken as an indication of future results. No attorney-client relationship is created by listening or submitting questions to the podcast. The podcast does not constitute legal advice, but rather is offered only for general informational and educational purposes. You should not act or rely on any information in the podcast without first seeking the advice of an attorney. The opinions expressed in the podcast reflect the views of those individuals and do not necessarily represent the views of any other individual or business. For more information about the Legally Sound Smart Business Show, visit LegallySoundSmartBusiness.com.